0: Pretty good. Good fourth. Fourth was last weekend. Did we do things? Lots of things. Lake things and whatnot. Harry, what's up, man? The front row. Do y'all know Harry Hans? Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of guy Harry is. You just say his name and applause erupts. I'm the opposite. People normally vomit. Um, good to see you, Harry. And Corey Hancock right there, back from Europe for the month. Yeah. Doing, doing, yeah, no claps for Corey. Yeah, we see who has character around here. Uh, I like it. Uh, Hey, it is good to see you. Uh, Umwaf asked me to do this. He's away, and I always love teaching Bloodworth, so I am glad to be here. Um, Very, very fun stuff. Uh, I want to to show you something out of Luke's Gospel, so go ahead and open up there to Luke 18. Our story this morning... um, has always fascinated me. It's the story of the rich ruler. And I'm not 100% sure why, but I think it has something to do with, I think it speaks into our culture. And when I say our culture, I don't mean just America. Um, I don't mean just 2016. I mean, even Grace Evan uh, culture uh, to an extent. And what I mean by that is most of us in this room and, and I don't want to assume because there's people that I don't know, people I haven't met. I don't know, you know, all of your stories. But most of us in this room have all of the information up here that we need to, to rightly follow and obey Jesus. Mo- most of us. I mean, you have unbelievable training. You might not think that you're prepared and you're equipped. But I mean, if you look at the, the history of your life and sitting under Dr. Young's teaching sitting under Jim's teaching, the Sunday school classes that you've gone to, the VBSs that you've done, the men's conferences, the ladies' Bible studies. Most of us in this room have all of the information that we need to rightly follow Jesus. We have all the pieces put together for this Christian life puzzle thing. Um, But what this text exposes and, and what I think that we see in the church is that many are missing a heart. The head is there, but missing a heart that finds Jesus and finds the gospel message to be so compelling, so life-altering, that we abandon our life and our desires and our kingdom. So, the information that we have stored up here, which, which is good... But the information is supposed to fuel this thing, a new heart with new desires, and then that's supposed to overflow into who we are or what we do, our behavior, our fruit. Uh, And so meeting, encountering the real Jesus uh, changes things. And so that's what I want to show you this morning in Luke 18. Uh, Turn there to verse 18 is uh, where we're going to start. And this is a guy who met Jesus. Uh, and yet his life didn't really change at all. So he had information, he had, he had doctrine, if you will, but his life didn't really change. He even had stellar outward performance, uh, but he didn't have a heart that desired to follow Jesus. And so his life was a tragic waste. I want you to meet Jesus in the text this morning, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this. He said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Let me pray over that. Ask God to help us. Father, what we ask now is nothing short of a miracle. Because what we need is your very spirit to give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear words that are written down on paper, But Lord, they're not mere words. They are your very breath. You have breathed these things out so that we might know you, so that we might know us. And in light of that, we would cling to your son, Jesus. And so we pray that you would accomplish those things this morning for our good and for your glory. And we ask it only in his name. Amen. So uh, any big... Any big Leo fans out there? Leonardo DiCaprio, big shot Hollywood actor. Well, you know, he's kind of recently surfaced as this um, environmental expert, which I trust everyone 100% who's, who's making movies in Hollywood, so I'm putting the full force of my trust in what he has to say. But, you know, he's kind of surfaced as this big guy who's, you know, climate change and, and pro-environment to the core. He's not happy with you. He's not happy with me for for using our our fossil fuels and and whatnot. But besides what you think about the environment or climate change or Hollywood or Leo, um, I think that he really means what he says. I mean, I think that he believes what he's preaching. I think that he, he's assessing the planet and going, you know, we need to stop doing some stuff and we need to start doing some stuff. And so at least in his mind, I think that what he is, is saying, he believes. But the question I have is, okay, has this recent change of, of, of thought for him, is it actually impacting things that he does? You know, is it actually impacting who he is, his, his, his behavior? Well, I, I found some stats on the Google, um, and it, that doesn't appear to be the case. This is what an article says. It says, unfortunately, Leo fails to live up to his own words. Which, is that not an indictment on, on all of us? Far from taking a courageous stand against climate change, Leo travels around the world in superyachts and private jets. And it lists these different things that he's done recently. He celebrated the World Cup this year in style aboard the Topaz, a superyacht. At 482 feet, it's the fifth biggest yacht in the world and gets appallingly low gas mileage. (laughs) I I would imagine so. Said yacht is owned by United Arab Emirates Sheik, it's this, this world-renowned sheik whose $150 billion fortune is derived mostly from the oil Leo said we need to keep in the ground. Uh, he regularly flies from New York to Sydney, sometimes just to enjoy a meal, which would be fueled by fossil-fueled private jets. The actor plans to travel to space aboard Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic. According to the FAA, one launch land cycle on the galactic has five times the carbon footprint of a flight from Singapore to London. And then he he uh, has some real estate endeavors. He has a knack for acquiring carbon intensive mega mansions. Since February, he's bought three properties totaling 23 million dollars, including a 10 million dollar apartment in New York that runs almost exclusively on the fossil fuels he thinks are destroying The planet. So why does this sort of thing happen? I mean, is he this evil person who gets a kick out of being a hypocrite and fooling us all? Maybe. But I think the answer is is simpler than that. I think he's human. (laughs) I think he's human. And I think that he has information up here that oftentimes doesn't make it down here. And so desire wins. I think we tend to look at the the big picture of the Christian life sometimes like that, maybe without even knowing it. Here's what I mean by that. I made this little chart for you. I think sometimes we think that having the right set of information in our minds is automatically going to produce or it's automatically going to lead to behavior or action or fruit, who we are. Now, information is, is not bad. In fact, it's necessary, right? It's good. The gospel doesn't happen over our heads. It's this existential thing that just somehow magically floats through the air, pierces our heart, we feel all these things, and then we're, we're made new. No, it doesn't happen over our head. Information is good. It's necessary. For example, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, take every thought captive To obey Christ, that's information. So we need right information. Romans 12, two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. Mind engagement, good thing. Information, good thing. Psalm 119, 15, I will meditate, meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. So information is necessary, it's needed, it's good, it's right, but don't you, every day in your own life, don't you find a disconnect in what we think and then in what we do? You know, I've listened to a lot of sermon series before. I think I've even read a book. Um, Was it MacArthur? I forget, it was a book, You Are What You Think. And um, I get that, and yet I go, man, I wish, <laughs> you know, it seems to be you are what you love because desire wins. I mean, I know that ordering a basket of onion rings from the Hueys is not the best choice for my body. And yet without fail, I order the basket of onion rings from the Hueys, as, as many of you do, as I can tell with your, your grin. Because desire wins. The the heart normally wins. You know, Jesus even illustrates this a few chapters earlier uh, in uh, Luke. You don't have to turn there. I'll read this. It's Luke 6, verse 43 and 45. He's illustrating this point. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Here's what that means. Here's what Jesus is illustrating by that short little parable in Luke 6. He's saying, if, if you you throw down apple seeds into the ground and they take root and you water them and and they go down and they take root. Don't expect for oranges to pop up a few months later. Don't expect for peaches to pop up a few months later. What he's saying is we're all creatures of the heart. We do what we love. We are what we love. And that's why scripture counsels us in Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. That's why Jesus wants your heart, not just your head. He doesn't want this either. He doesn't want a stiff, robotic kind of servant, you know, who just has the right doctrine shoved up there. Well, they've been been groomed in the right Christian circles. They've been groomed to know the right things about doctrine. And so now they must kind of robotically go through life and serve me. That's not what he wants. He wants for his desires to be our desires. He wants for his passion to bring glory to God the Father in everything, to be our desire to bring God the Father glory in everything that we do. You see, when we have this kind of a mindset whether we, we, we think about it or not, whether this is just kind of a subconscious way that we operate in life or whether it's, you know, we're really dug into that. It makes the Christian life, I think, so sad, so joyless. It just becomes this, it just becomes this thing that you're pulling along, this burden that you're pulling along, just trying not to do these certain things and trying to do these certain things. Joyless, sad, and kind of boring. I mean, the Christian life, is, it's supposed to be this radically joyful overflow of a new heart that God gives when he shows us our sin and when he shows Christ as the solution for that sin. This is more what the Christian life is supposed to look like. We get a new heart, so we get new desires. You know, for those of you in the room who you've been pregnant before, um, First of all, God bless you. Um, But you you know how certain things maybe you loved before pregnancy? You got pregnant and like they were just all of a sudden awful. What was it? Jess, you used to make these things every day that you loved. And then as soon as you got pregnant with Kaylee, you hated it. What was it? Like a coffee drink or some crazy cocktail or whatever you used to do all the time. I forget what it was. But it was something, I mean, she loved it. She'd make this thing every day and then she gets, she's pregnant. It's like, oh, it's now just, oh, I can't even smell it. The smell would nauseate her. I mean, that's what, that's what coming to Christ is. It's these, our desires have been replaced. Things that we once loved, they disgust us and vice versa. That's what the Christian life is. So when we get a new heart, which gives us new perspective and new desires, and then We get stuff up here. That's who Jesus is. That's what sanctification is. That's what justification is. That's what the gospel is. That's what sin is. That's what faith is. Those two things work together. Not a formula. That's a simplistic way, but it's not a formula. But all of a sudden, this stuff up here fuels this. And then it becomes who we are. It becomes what we do. So, what, is that? What, is, what does all that have to do with this story? Well, here's what it has to do. How do we see this on display? Here's how we see it on display. You have a very wealthy guy who comes up to Jesus, and he's asking him some questions. And he seems to be at an okay place in life. It says that he, uh, uh, many of our other texts say that he was rich. That's what this says the rich ruler. So he's in an okay place in life and he comes to Jesus and he asks this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, there's a few things that are implied there, even that he would come to Jesus and that he would ask that question. First of all, when he says, what do I have to do to inherit this eternal life thing? By him coming to Jesus would imply that he even had some things going well. It would imply that he had some correct information. Okay, Jesus seems to be the guy that I need to talk to about this eternal life thing. So you could say in some sense that he, he knew Jesus. You could say in some sense that he believed in Jesus because he was the guy that he went to to ask these questions about eternity. So he's got information. He's talking to Jesus. So my question would be, will that information and him coming to Jesus, I know Jesus, I believe in Jesus, is that going to lead to to his behavioral change? Is that going to lead to life change? It doesn't look like it did. Another one of his errors is that, uh, and this is ingrained in all of us from day one. Notice what he asks of Jesus. He said, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's ingrained in all of us. We're just, we're, we're hardwired and we're programmed to do and to think like that. And we all train our kids to do the same, right? If you don't bite your sister, you know, we won't beat you. Or if you don't do this, if you do your homework, if you, if you make an A, then we'll give you, you know, the $5. But if you don't, we won't. We all do this. We're just hard, hardwired to do. We're allergic to this thing called grace. And so we've all asked that question at some point, God, what must I do or what must I not do? I mean, what must I do? Is it, is it not getting drunk and you know beating my wife? Is it not cheating on my taxes? Is it reading my Bible? Is it knowing certain things? Is it just really trying to be a good person? Did you know that Jesus gives two options to coming into a right standing with him? Gasps. I'm going to be excommunicated for heresy. Wait, what did he just say? Jesus gives two options for coming into a right standing with God the Father. He really does. Turn to Galatians 3. I want to show you. Here's option one. It's found in Galatians 3, uh, the end of 11, into verse 12. End of verse 11, Paul writes this The righteous. Shall live by faith. And here's option one. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here's what that means Option one is obey the law perfectly. If, if the faith thing isn't for you, okay, here's one option just obey the law perfectly, and, and you'll be okay. You'll be in. Obey the law perfectly. Well, bro in our story thinks that he's hit the jackpot because that's, that's kind of what he hears. Jesus goes through half of the, the commandments, half of the Ten Commandments, and the dude is going, oh, check, check, check. Oh, he's going, I got that. I've done that. I've done that since I was a kid. So he's feeling really good about himself because option one seems to be the easier way. It's nice and neat. Just give me some rules. Give me some boxes. I can go and do. I can perform. So I'm good. Option one works with me and he lists half the law. And, you know, it's kind of like when I ask my kids if they've cleaned their room. Their standard of clean is very different than my standard of clean. Hey, is your room clean? Yes, yes, yes. We didn't find any dead carcasses in there, you know. So, yes, it's totally clean. You walk in, you still can't move around, you know, all the junk. That's this guy going, oh, sweet. That's, you just, whoo, ooh. I don't have to do much. You know, I don't have to change. Okay, okay, I didn't know that was all it took. I'm good to go because I can do that. I can do those things. I have done those things. His standard was much different than that of Christ Jesus. Because do you really think that he kept the law? Even any of those five that Jesus listed, even for a second in his life, do you really think that he kept the law? Here's the truth about God. He demands, not kindly kind of, I mean... You know, there's going to be some of you who do a little bit better. Some of you struggle with this. He demands perfect obedience. That's what his character demands. Anything short of that is an absolute, it's absolutely against his essence, against his character. It's reprehensible. It's unclean and it's not allowed and there's no way to get around that. His law, his character demands perfect obedience. And the truth about God's law in it demanding exact and perfect obedience goes far, far deeper than can you obey ten things. That seems simple right? To the to the onlooking world, that seems simple. Okay, I can not murder. Okay, I cannot build a statue and put it in my nice Germantown home and and, and and bow down to it. I can do those things. Give me a list of 10 things. I can do those things. And that is not exact obedience of God's law. It's not that simple. When's the last time you cared more, maybe about your career or working out or your kid, then you did God's glory. Yeah, oh, strike one. You just made an idol out of that thing. So there's one down. Uh, the seventh commandment, it condemns sexual misconduct. Has there ever been maybe an image in your mind that you'd be rather embarrassed to admit in a public setting? Yeah, oh. Here's another strike. What about not stealing? Maybe you've never knocked over a First Tennessee. But have you ever hoarded money or talent or your time or other resources that should have been given to God in service? Yeah, oh another strike. And the list goes on and on and on because that's the thing about God's law. It's not just a list of external things that we can do and we check off. It looks at the heart and it's the reason that we have the law. It's the reason we were given it because we look at it and all of a sudden when it becomes internal stuff and heart stuff and motive stuff, we go, whoa, that's impossible. Not murdering someone, I can do. Not murdering someone in my heart, I can't do that. See, these commandments, they're to rule our hearts as well as our actions and our words. You know, you think that this, this rich punk in the text or any of us have ever done that for one day in our lives? No. Not a chance. And so rational, good, thinking people say, whoa, that's, that's an impossible standard. That is so incredibly unfair. That is not a possible standard. Now you're talking about motives behind why we do what we do. And you're talking about all this this inside stuff. Just give me a list of easy stuff to do, let me check them off. And the gospel, in a very real way, says you're absolutely right that it is impossible. That is an impossible standard. That's why option one in Galatians 3 does not work out well for us. Yet as a society, we try it. And even for all the information that we have about grace and freedom in Christ, we try it every day to some extent, don't we? See, option two, however, that's... That's the one I want to sign up for. That's the one that says that salvation being rescued is by faith alone in the one who does meet that impossible standard, who did carry out the father's laws perfectly, not just externally, but internally as well. That's the one that I want. And Paul talks about it in Galatians 3. Listen, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here is the beauty of the gospel in verse 13 of Galatians chapter three. You want a summary of the gospel? Just underline it in your Bible. Go tell this to someone today or this week. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, there's a a covenantal promise coming to fruition. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, faith, faith. This guy's missing it. This rich ruler, he's, he's totally missing that. He comes to Jesus and he's absolutely missing it. He has doctrine in his head, he even has a very good outside that's going on, and yet that does not suffice for this Savior. And so Jesus asks him something, and I'm t- this spooked me and it, and it confused me for many, many years. I did not understand why in verse 22 he went here. This one itty-bitty little request in verse 22, what he does, Jesus takes his hands and he puts it around this guy's heart and he squeezes it to see what's really in there. Here's what he asks in verse 22. But when he heard these things, or I'm sorry, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That seems totally out of left field. That seems to me totally out of left field. It seems out of place. It seems weird. It almost seems like a works-based righteousness, doesn't it? He's asking, what do I do? And he says, do this one thing. Why does he say that there in verse 22? Here's why he says that. He wants to see what this guy really wants. It's not out of left field. What he's doing is he gets right to the root. He gets right to the core, right to the, the command center of this guy's life. This one simple test. Give up the thing that has your heart. That's what he's asking in verse 22. It's not necessarily for money. In this guy's case, it was. But in essence, he's asking, the thing that has your heart, give me that. And that is utterly frightening, isn't it? Because that thing's different. I can literally, I can, I can picture in my mind's eye this guy's face just turning white and his stomach just turning. No, 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 no. You can't have that. You can have the rules stuff like I'll do the church thing. I won't murder people. I'll honor my father and mother, but back away from that. That's who I am. That's my identity. That's the thing that makes me feel safe and secure. Don't, 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 Don't touch that. You can have these things, Jesus. You can't have that. And so... I think the question that this text is asking all of us is, does Jesus have your heart? Because again, I'm not trying to assume, I, I don't know every one of you, but, but I would think in the main, in the building of Grace Evangelical Church, he, he has this. But does he have the heart? Again, I can't say it enough. I think we have most of it right up here. You know, one just kind of side note litmus test, you know, if you want to, and this is so indicting and, and, and so convicting for me, if you want to test what you really value, what you really worship, what do you talk about most? You know, what do you, what do you think about most? What do you talk about most? Yeah, have you ever um, met someone who's gone and they've tried that brand new restaurant, you know, in Midtown or downtown or whatever, and it's just like, that's, They just want to tell you about it. You know, it's just like this overflow and it's just all they can can talk about for the next week. Oh, I mean, you wouldn't believe it. We went down there. It was great. This, that and the other. I mean, that's just the test. I mean, what do we talk about most? I mean, is there a natural overflow of of what we what we have experienced in Christ? I mean, do our lives look like that? Do our relationships look like that? Our our interaction with others. So for this guy in our text, um, it was his money, it was his stuff that that had wrapped itself around his heart. And that's what Jesus was exposing by his request there in verse 22 to go and sell it all. He didn't literally mean that going and selling it all was what was going to bring him salvation. Again, that would have been a works-based righteousness which the Bible um, condemns. That's not what it was at all. What he wanted, what he was getting at with his interaction with this man was he wants those crevices in our hearts and in our lives. And, and he found one in this, this rich rulers where he refused God, he, he refused to let God be God. You can be God here, you can be God there, you can be God here, you can be God there, but that's mine. What are ours? What are ours? Because the demand of the gospel is that God gets all of us, not some of us. Jesus doesn't want just your intellect. He doesn't want just you to have the right stuff inside of this mainframe that sits on top of our bodies. He wants us to have a heart that desires him. And, And we all need the Holy Spirit regularly shining his flashlight around our hearts, revealing to us. What is ultimately keeping us from yielding to Christ's call? So I'm going to pray now for that spirit to do searching in all of us, myself included. Father, thank you for your word. It's one of uh, the vehicles of how you deliver grace to us. And that's what we're experiencing together even this morning corporately. And we'll go into um, another room and continue to worship by doing that. Uh, but Lord, what we need is not just more information. The point I've been making is we, you could be around Grace of Anne for six months and have more than 98% of the world when it comes to right information. Uh, we have a lot of that. Uh, what we need is bigger. It's more miraculous Uh, more infectious to a dying culture and a world. Uh, It's desire, it's right desires, it's new desires, it's, it's new hearts, it's hearts of flesh. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do what Jesus challenged this man to do, and yet he couldn't. I pray that you would show us those things, that you would give us The Holy Spirit wrought power uh, to break those chains Uh, because we can't do it on ourself. Willpower does not work. We've tried that every day. We've tried to do what Leo does. We believe certain things. We think certain things. But apart from your grace, apart from your spirit, we simply can't do them. And so we ask for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit to do that in all of us. And Lord, may this church, may we all look different when that sort of thing happens, when that sort of encounter with you, the Savior of the world, happens. So we thank you again for your word. We thank you for these people, uh, for this body. We love you, and we're sorry that we love you so little. Uh, Will you help us, help our unbelief? We ask it in Christ Jesus' name, amen.